Well, good morning. As we gather together this morning, um, uh, just a, a word of invitation, and then uh, we will kind of dive into a, a robust Bible study for us today. Uh, offering Mass today for the repose of the soul of Miss, Miss Kate Crosby, who took her last breath on yesterday and entered into the gift of uh, everlasting life. And um, as many of us are aware of that, or maybe just finding out about this now, uh, we're all moved to intercede for the repose of her soul and for her family. And so let's just take a moment now in silence to, to pray for Miss Kate. Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon her. May she rest in peace. Amen. And may her soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. Uh, so prayers for Miss Kate and, uh, and certainly for her family. Uh, today, as we enter into Mass today, um, I, uh, I just uh, kind of invite you into the, the behind the scenes of a lot of what happens. Um, in the art of preaching, um, a good preacher knows not only what he wants to communicate, but the purpose of the style of the delivery. That's critical. Uh, it's one thing to know what you want to say, but every uh, message has a, a delivery. Some teachings uh, or some homilies, some sermons, some preaching is designed to teach. Sometimes it's designed to exhort us, to encourage us, Sometimes it's called to propel us into action. Um, so different um, preaching feels different based on the purpose of the message as well as the content, what it's trying to, to, uh, to deliver. I'd like to invite you immediately today into the posture of a teaching, a big Bible study for us today, which I'd like to volley to you is an invitation to simply at least hear more about why the Catholic Church um, teaches what it does around this thing called going to confession to a priest. Hot topic, right? Lots of people often ask, um, well, why do I have to go to confession to a priest? Or why do Catholics say that you should go to confession to a priest? And why is it difficult uh, for those who do practice that to go to confession to a priest? I'd like to slowly walk with you there, maybe, maybe at least present some things that you then can kind of pray with on your own. But at least today, we can hear clearly, well, why does the church uh, believe what it believes there? And we're going to start to get together on page nine. So uh, it is a teaching, so you really want the, the bulletin today. I acknowledge that I'm going to probably cover lots of material. And as we cover lots of material, this is there for you to return to. This homily will be online. You can return to it. I, and I've got all day, if anybody wants to stay after Mass, just ask a question to would love to kind of connect some dots for you if you have any questions. But join me on page nine because I want to revisit where we were last week, knowing that uh, some of us didn't have those bulletins last week. Uh, and as we remind you of where we were last week, it's a perfect segue into this week. So let's just kind of get back in the waters of the story last week, right? This is on page nine. Last week, we talked about three different things. We talked about the fact that Mary and Joseph were on their way to Bethlehem. And if you look in the middle of page 9 there, uh, I'm reminded that the word Bethlehem is comprised of two words. That means household of bread. So as they're going to Bethlehem, 
obviously because that's where David was born. And in 2 Samuel, God said that the Messiah would be in David's line, right? But they're also going to Bethlehem for some other um, biblical reasons which fulfill images of the Old Testament in the person of Jesus. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, which literally translates as house of bread. And he was placed in a manger, which I reminded us last week, for those of us who speak French, right? The word manger means to eat. A manger is where the animals would eat. That's that painting to the left of that paragraph. So Jesus was born in the house of bread. His mother placed him in a manger, right? Something where people eat. Why is that important? Next quote, stay with me, right? In John chapter 50, uh, 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread. Jesus, who was born in a place called House of Bread, in John 6 says, I am the living bread. Now, let me just pause for a second, knowing that many of us come from different faith traditions. There is, uh, in the Christian world, those who would say, well, as we read John 6, Jesus is talking about his word, right? Because when he's tempted by the devil, Jesus responds. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So some would read John 6 and say, oh, he's talking about his word. But that seems to be inconsistent with what Jesus says. Look at John 6.51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread I will give is my flesh. And in the rest of John 6, especially if you dive into the original Greek, it's pretty just undeniable that Jesus is talking about this stuff right here underneath the skin, right? This flesh, this meat of a human being, right? And so Jesus gives us his flesh. Obviously, we're not cannibals. He gives us that to us in the bread. He was born in the house of bread. He says, I am the living bread. And at the Last Supper, he takes the bread of the new Passover meal connects it to his flesh as he says, this is my body given to you. Do this in memory of me. Quick summary, last week's teaching online will help you with that if you need to be reminded of that. What's interesting is that St. Paul actually references this. Look at the bottom of page 9. He says, quoting 1 Corinthians, right, chapter 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. So if the bread at Mass is just a symbol, if it's not actually the bread, and if St. Paul didn't believe that, if the early Christians didn't believe that, then if it's just a symbol, why would you have to answer to receive it unworthily? Especially when St. Paul says, for the body and blood of the Lord. Long story short, we can talk about this more in depth if you'd like. But the early church believed that the bread that was celebrated at Mass, we see references to this in Acts chapter 2, as well as in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Right? The early Christian community believed that the bread at Mass was actually transformed into the presence of Jesus. And, and, and this bread, um, right, is, he says we want to receive that worthily. Now flip the page over with me to page 10 as we just kind of inch through this together today, just a conversation, as we talk, first of all, about the Bible. Number one, at the top of page 10, number one, we should all read Scripture. 
I, 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 I do that. I just encourage you often, over and over and over, read the Bible, right? The Bible's God's gift to us. But to read the Bible with the help of wisdom. Let me pause for a second. I was born at five, I was born at the hospital, right? But I grew up at 513 Forest Boulevard. That's in Homa, Louisiana. 513 Forest Boulevard. Now, later on, as I was growing up, we, we would say all kinds of things. Uh, I, we said we grew up on Forest Street. And then later on, my dad started saying that we lived on Frosty Drive. I'm not quite sure how Forest got changed to Frosty, but now when I'm with my family and they say, where are you going today? I say, I'm going to Frosty. In my family, we all know, what does that mean? We're going to Forest Boulevard. Somehow the word Frosty Drive got to mean Forest Boulevard. Who's Mr. Cool? Well, my dad is. Because when I was in eighth grade and really obnoxious, that's when a long time ago, I'm going to date myself, that's when the word cool was really starting to hit fashion. Everything was cool. You know, as an, a young, obnoxious seventh and eighth grader, everything was cool. How was, your, how was your day in school? Oh, it was cool. How are your friends? Oh, they're cool. So my dad started calling me Mr. Cool. So then I started calling my dad Mr. Cool. Is my dad's name Mr. Cool? No. Especially because my dad spells it K-E-W-L. I'm not quite sure how that got in there, right? But I call my dad. His name is Prosper, not Mr. Cool. But if you hear me talk about Mr. Cool, who lives on Frosty Street, I'm actually talking about Prosper Tubes Jr., who lives on Forest Boulevard. And you would only know that if you got to know my language a little deeper. Was Jesus crucified between two thieves? Yes. Were they people who stole things? No. Because the Greek word that's often translated into thieves actually at the time of Jesus meant a political revolutionary. And if this guy said that he was the king, he would have been, had been in the Roman eyes, crucified because he was, a, he was uh, mocking the, the emperor, right? He was a political revolutionary. So Jesus was crucified between two political revolutionaries. But if your Bible, which is written in English, says that he was crucified between two thieves, you might think they stole something. I want you to read the Bible. I'm, I'm imploring you to read the Bible, but do so knowing that sometimes having some wisdom helps us understand what the words mean. And that, my friends, is really a way for you to appreciate at least what I'm going to present to you today in the teaching. That some of the words in the Bible as wisdom helps us appreciate them further. Right? Number two, look at the top of page 10. Number two, be aware of text proofing. What does that mean? Text proofing is when I have an opinion about something I believe is true, and I open up the Bible. Watch me here. I open up the Bible, and I take this verse, and I say, yeah, this proves it to me. Well, this verse was in like six paragraphs. It was in context. It has historical meaning. But when I, when I dismiss all that, I take a Bible passage. You can prove anything you want by stealing something out of the Bible. 
if you take it out of context. So just be aware that when we're, we're talking about today a Bible teaching, everything is in context of what came before it and after it, who Jesus is speaking to, all those kinds of things. All right, so I want to answer and ask some questions today. Look at page 10 together. Put your eyeballs on this. I want to ask some questions. Did Jesus establish a new priesthood of the new covenant? This is, a, this is where we got to start. Because most people struggle with the sacrament of reconciliation because we often may believe that once Jesus came, everything about religion was destroyed, dismissed, and all we need is Jesus. Which in some way, gosh, he is the mediator. That's very clear from Paul. But did Jesus institute some physical ways that we could know his presence? Absolutely. How about baptism? There's physical water there. It's a ritual. It's clear that Jesus gave his baptism. Few religions would dismiss baptism because that's there. But, but when we believe in baptism, we then believe in physical incarnational ways that we experience and encounter God. Okay, Jesus, whenever you see the word new covenant, you can't understand new covenant unless you understand the old covenant, the old Passover, right? The, the old priesthood, what that really was. We've spent lots of time talking about the new covenant. But just know in the Bible, when you see new covenant, there is no new covenant without a new Passover lamb and without a new priesthood. Look on page 10, the second piece there. In John chapter 17, 18 and 19, Jesus is at the Last Supper. And he's not with all 72 disciples. He's not with a bunch of people. He's with 12 people. His mom is not even there. He's with 12. These are going to be his future bishops and priests. And he looks at them and he uses ancient priesthood language as he says, consecrate them in your truth. And then he says, and I'm going to send these consecrated ones into the world. Now, you know what the word consecrate means, right? The word consecrate, this is consecrated bread. It's reserved in a special place. It's apart from all the other bread. To consecrate biblically means to make sacred, to make holy, to set apart for sacred service. So Jesus is looking at these 12 and he's, he's saying, Father, consecrate them. Right? For sacred things. St. Paul knew this, right? In 2 Corinthians, St. Paul, who in the context of this quote, is talking about how he um, is consecrated for Jesus, right? Says that I am qualified as a minister of a new covenant. That's biblical language. That's priesthood language that he is a minister, a priest of Jesus Christ of a new covenant. Now, if you, if you can receive that, great. Let's keep moving. If you have a struggle with that, I'm after mass. Love to talk to you about that. We can unpack that together. The second question is, all right, if there is a new priesthood, stay with me if you can for a second. Did Jesus give this priesthood authority, authority and, and then authority to act in his name? Look at Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, as he says to Peter, right, the leader of this new priesthood, 
He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is also in, in two chapters later in Matthew 18, he's, he's, he's referring to those 12 apostles again. This is language, binding and loosing, that comes from the prophet Isaiah, and the steward of the kingdom would, would be given the authority to bind and loose on the behalf of the king. To understand this, you have to understand the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, and the way that the, the steward would act on the behalf of the king. But Jesus is, seems to be very explicitly taking the power given to him and then entrusting it to mere human beings, right, to these priests who are consecrated to act in his name. Keep going down, right? We also see this in Luke chapter 12. As they, again, to the 12 only, he gives power and authority, right? And then John chapter 20, Jesus says, as I have authority, so I'm now sending you with that authority. So we, we can say, maybe Father Mark, I don't understand the priesthood. You can say that. You can say, Father Mark, I'm not quite sure if I trust the priesthood. I would get that. But I say this with a, you can't say it's not in the Bible. That, that would be a confusing statement. That would be, huh, okay, well then, what about this, 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 and this, right? It would require a really in-depth conversation about the Bible when there is biblical evidence that Jesus did establish a new priesthood, right? Now, here's, here's where it gets a little more personal. Look at the bottom of page 10. Did Jesus... Is there biblical evidence that Jesus gave to his priesthood the, the authority to deal with sin? In John chapter 20, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he goes into the locked room. Who's there? The 12. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Whose sins you retain are retained. It's a pretty bold, explicit statement from Jesus passing on this authority, right, to forgive sins. Again, if you, if you have the ears to hear at least why the church would believe what it believes, again, we can struggle to assimilate it. We can struggle because maybe it's new. That's okay. But let's at least learn why the church teaches what she teaches. Page 11, the top of page 11, more biblical evidence. Is there evidence in the Bible explicitly of the sacrament of reconciliation. St. Paul, as he is with the early Christian community, right? St. Paul, one of those early bishops, one of those early priests, right? He says, and I'm going to read this if you can follow along with me from 2 Corinthians. He says, all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting their trespasses against us, and entrusting to us the message to preach and the ministry, mentioned earlier, of reconciliation. So St. Paul says, So we, who's we? The apostles and priests, are ambassadors for Christ as if God were appealing through us. Now when you take that into context, you read what's after it, you read what's before it, you read all the footnotes that talk about, oh, that connects to this passage and that passage. St. Paul is saying this. The only person who forgives sins is Jesus. The only atonement for sin is Jesus. The only reason there is forgiveness is because of Jesus. 
The only person who has authority to do anything in our life is Jesus. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and I still have a body, y'all. We're all human beings, and we like to touch things and smell things and taste things and hear things. And so Jesus took some human beings to act on his name here on earth to people who live on earth so that we might hear his voice and experience his, his compassion in the flesh, right? Next question, is there any evidence that other people believed and actually practiced the reconciliation? And the letter of James, I'm going to read this with you. He says, is anyone among you sick? He said, summon the presbyters of the church. Stop right there. If you are familiar with New Orleans and you know where uh, St. Louis Cathedral is, many of you are familiar with that building on the side of the cathedral. It's called the Presbytery. Why? Because that's where the presbyters live. That's where the priests live, right? Uh, I'm actually not a priest. I'm a presbyter. That's the official title, right? We call it priest because it's an Old Testament word. But the Greek used is presbyter. So James, an apostle, he's the cousin of Jesus, he's saying, if there's somebody sick among you, call the priest, right? And then keep reading with me. He says, they should pray over him and anoint him with oil. That's one of the things that a priest does, right? The anointing of the sick. And then he says, and the prayer of the faith will save the sick person. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven by Jesus through the ministry of the presbyter. It's explicit that the early Christian church believed in a priesthood, called on the priest for sacraments. And of course, in Acts chapter 19, those early believers came forward and openly acknowledged right to the community in the presence of a priest, their former practices, which was their sins. All right, that's a lot. Just stay with me here. You can say, Father Mark, I don't like going to confession. You can say that. I get that. You can say, Father Mark, I didn't grow up Catholic, and, and in the church I went to, we didn't practice confession. You can say that. There's a lot of variety in Christian denominations. I, I, I get that. That's, that's valid. You can say, Father Mark, I don't trust the priesthood with all the scandals. I get that. You can say all that. But please, don't say... Don't say, there's no biblical evidence for it. Don't say, the Catholic Church made it up. Just, just don't say that. We can say, I don't understand all those Bible passages. That's a valid, okay, I get that. But don't say, it's not in the Bible. It's, it's black and white. Especially if you understand the context with which Jesus says things. Go with me back to page 11. What are some reasons why Christians struggle with the sacrament of reconciliation? Why do Christians struggle with the Catholic Church's teaching to go to confession? Number one, because you've lost trust that there is an actual biblical evidence. I, I get that. Okay, I just gave you a quick summary I would love to sit down with you if you need that. If you've lost trust that it's not in the Bible, my volley to you today is, let's just read it together. Number two, because your history of religious affiliation doesn't practice confession as such. Okay, get that. 
Many of us, some of us may not be Catholic. Maybe in your religious traditions, you don't practice confession. Okay, I get that. I understand that. Number three, because you've lost trust in the integrity of the priesthood of the Catholic Church. I get that. I've spent 22 years fighting hard to be the best priest I can possibly be, and I've spent 22 years saying what I'm about to say, and I'm going to say it all over again. There's only one priesthood of Jesus Christ. There's only one high priest. And any Catholic priest was brought into his priesthood. That means where one priest is, all priests are. So let me say this. On behalf of every priest that's ever lived, that is living today, that is in a church or in jail, on behalf of the priesthood, I apologize to you for the scandal that has affected people's trust in God or their trust in, in, in things that are sacred. In our humanity, oftentimes priests make mistakes. I make mistakes. Some, some of those mistakes are egregious or illegal, and, 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 and that's been on the news. And if that has undermined your trust in the priesthood, I can only apologize with integrity and authenticity for the sins of the human beings who are in the priesthood. There's a Bible passage that says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And there's a different judgment day for priests when they hit the pearly gates, especially for my brothers who, who have been the cause of scandal. And so I apologize if you have lost trust in what we do because of how we have acted. With that, I can only invite you to hear the apologies. If you can accept it, then please God for that. If not, maybe that's a place where you can just ask the Lord for a little help in conversation today. If we can, just together, look at like that fourth one on page 11. Some of us struggle because the thought of and experience of and actually confessing one's sins to another person's elicits vulnerability, shame, or fear. Okay, now that, that's, that's real stuff. I don't like going to confession, and it's my job. I don't like going, but I go. I go once a month, and every time I go to confession as a penitent, it's, gosh, it's kind of awkward to stand in front of another human being who's sitting in the place of God and to actually articulate what your sins are. But maybe that's, maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is in that moment, I feel the natural emotion of the consequences of my spiritual life. I, I have changed some of my behavior because I don't want to have to admit that again. That's, that's the point, Right? So if it's awkward to go to confession, I get it. Just because it feels a certain way doesn't change the invitation that comes from him, right? And I just want us to hear the difference there. So what's necessary? Well, just humility. And if John the Baptist stood before people and said, no, I'm not even worthy to, to be his slave. I'm not worthy to untie his, his sandals. I said before Mass, right? The only people who untied sandal straps were slaves. John the Baptist, holy guy, had a great humility within him. 
And I think, now I say this with love as a, a father. I think one of the things that prevents some of us from going to confession is just the ordinary human stuff. Which we can then get into some mental, gymnast, mental gymnastics and say, well, I'm not going to go because of that. I simply present to you this. On behalf of presenting you him. And I stand ready to invite you to freedom. Just an invitation. Next Saturday, 10 hours. And any point this week that you would need it if it's more convenient for you. Now, to make it easier for you, here we go. Flip the page. Go to page 12. Instead of inviting you to take the examination of conscience home, I just put it in the bulletin. You don't have to grab anything. Just take this. On page 12 is the overview of confession. On pages 13, 14, 15, and 16 are good questions that kind of prompt our soul. Uh, The examination of conscience today is in the bulletin. Just take this home with you. It's got everything you need. Why? Because all Advent long I've been saying that this is the image of our heart. And for any of us today to say, I don't have any sin in my heart. Come on. I do. I'm going to go to confession before Saturday. We all do, y'all. We all know that if we're honest. What they are, well, that, that, that can help you get real specific, right? But how about maybe if Christmas, the baby, this is our heart, if he's coming here, do we really want sin there? Of course not, right? You're here today because you love him. That's obvious. You're here today because you want freedom. That's obvious. And so the invitation placed before you is for us to, with great freedom, go into Christmas with our hearts wide open. So you don't have to go to confession to me. Go to confession to any priest. Wherever you're going to be over the next week or two, just find a priest somewhere. If you don't know him, that might be easier for you because you'll never see him again. Sometimes that helps us out, right? I'll be here for 10 hours next Saturday, but find any priest before Christmas. Have the courage and trust and the biblical support to, 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 to share your heart with a priest. And let's ask the Lord that this Christmas he would be born in our hearts and that we would receive him without sin. Amen.